Good morning, and welcome to Her Turn, a show of news and information by and about women. I'm Kathy Lynn. Political news moves fast these days. Today, we bring you updates on the latest developments in Congress, including the important women-relevant changes to the proposed health care bill and the failure of the bill to come up for a vote. We will also fill you in on the latest developments in LGBTQ rights in Taiwan and Spanish women step up as bodyguards for women who were victims of domestic abuse. And Her Turn reporter Arlene Zaucha finds out more about the Odyssey Project, an important program here in Dane County aimed at closing wealth and racial disparities. So stay tuned for this and so much more on this week's edition of Her Turn News. And I'm Amber Walker. Republican leaders in the U.S. US House of Representatives on Friday canceled a vote on their health care reform legislation after it became clear that they didn't have the votes to pass it, despite one of the largest Republican majorities in the House's history. A major plank in the Trump agenda, the American Health Care Act of 2017 would have repealed the Affordable Care Act, popularly known as Obamacare. Estimates by the Congressional Budget Office and other reports were that over 20 million Americans could lose health insurance coverage under this new Trump bill. Women specifically dodged a metaphorical bullet with the bill's defeat. The bill sought to defund Planned Parenthood, which provides health services to millions of low-income women nationwide. It would have restricted access to abortion even more by limiting the use of tax credits instead of the Hyde Amendment, which currently limits the use of federal taxes. The uninsured rate among women fell between 17 to 11 percent following the passage of the Affordable Care Act, in large part because of the Medicaid expansion provisions in the law. The Trump Act would end funding for the expansion and cap Medicaid funding overall. Changes in tax credit assistance would have also disadvantaged women who who tend to have lower incomes than men while providing significant tax breaks to the wealthiest Americans. Amendments added to the bill late last week would have also made matters even worse for women. One amendment would have given states the right to kick unemployed mothers off of Medicaid coverage if they didn't find work within 60 days of giving birth. On Thursday, Trump agreed to ending the Affordable Care Act's guaranteed essential health benefits, including pregnancy, newborn, and maternity care, as well as preventative care such as birth control. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled to raise the bar on learning standards for children with disabilities. The ruling upheld the principle that students with disabilities are entitled to an ambitious and challenging set of standards tailored to their unique needs, regardless of the classroom setting they are in. The Supreme Court's ruling represents a sharp pivot for two lower court rulings in 1996 and 2008, which upheld that schools were only required to offer students with special needs an educational program that provided minimal academic growth from year to year. In his opinion in Wednesday's case, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote, quote, When all is said and done, a student offered an educational program providing, quote, merely more than de minimis progress, end quote, from year to year, 
can hardly be said to have been offered an education at all. For children with disabilities, receiving instruction that aims so low would be tantamount to sitting idly, awaiting the time when they were old enough to drop out, end quote. The Supreme Court's decision also led to a tough line of questions for Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch during his confirmation hearings. Directly following the court's announcement on Wednesday, congressional committee members grilled Gorsuch about the 2008 decision when he ruled against the family of a child with special needs. Gorsuch said he did not want to rule against the family, but was bound to uphold court precedent. A new survey released by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has been shown to eliminate a crucial question capturing the needs of the LGBT population. The National Survey of Older Americans Act participants ensures that older adults receive basic services, including access to food, transportation, and caregiver support. The survey included a question about sexual identity since 2014 in order to address the discriminatory barriers LGBT elders are known to experience. The national data collection about LGBT elders is crucial to better understand the challenges they face and to improve the current health disparities that senior LGBT people receive. It is not the only change the Trump administration is imposing against LGBT communities. Last month, the Department of Education withdrew its guidance protecting transgender students' access to bathrooms and locker rooms that match their genders. The Department of Justice also retreated from its fight against North Carolina's anti-transgender law, HB2. Last Tuesday, Texas senators put forth a bill that would allow doctors to withhold information from pregnant patients regarding fetal abnormalities in order to prevent them from seeking an abortion. Senate Bill 25 prevents women from pursuing wrongful birth lawsuits on the grounds that their doctor withheld important fetal health information. The bill is the most recent in a long line of legislation eliminating a doctor's refusal to inform a patient about fetal health problems as a cause of action in wrongful birth suits. Twelve other states have passed almost identical laws in the past 30 years. This is not the first law Texas passed in an effort to prevent women from choosing to have abortions. Texas politicians have also passed legislation requiring doctors to spread misinformation to their patients linking breast cancer and abortion. Under Texas law, doctors must direct women to read a booklet published by the state. A Rutgers University audit determined the booklet contains at least 41 false or misleading assertions about fetal development. Healthcare providers have spoken out against what they see as political interference with their work. Organizations such as the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the National Physicians Alliance have published statements opposing legislation like the bill Texas is currently considering. Here in Dane County, there's a lot of talk about the wealth gap and racial disparities. Her Turns Arlene Zaucha reports on a program that is actually doing something about it. The 
Odyssey is not just a classic Greek poem by Homer. Here's an example of another Odyssey. On Wednesday nights now, we have 30 adults reading Shakespeare and Socrates and Langston Hughes and Martin Luther King. We also are working with 50 children ages 2 to 18 who are going to the art museum, the children's museum. They're doing writing. They're talking about themselves and getting excited about what their future might bring. That's UW-Madison professor Emily Auerbach explaining the program she began 14 years ago with an alum of the program, Char Braxton, Auerbach talks about the aims of the program. The Odyssey Project is a college jumpstart program for adults facing adversity. And we started it because of the belief that there are a lot of people in our community who have gifts, who have dreams, and simply haven't been given the opportunity because of lack of income, or sometimes they've been told that they're not college material. And that's where Shar, one of our graduates, maybe can tell her story. Yes, being born and raised here in Madison, Wisconsin, I went to a local high school And looking forward to graduation and going on to college, my high school counselor told me that I was not college material. Devastated me, broke my heart, wondering what I was going to do in life. One day, um, as I was visiting our local library, I came across a brochure, and it was like a journey to college. And I filled out the application. I had the librarian help me out with the application. Wow, was I excited when I got that letter that I was admitted into the Odyssey program and to know that I could begin a journey and that I was college material. And we have students over the 14 years of the program who now have gone from being homeless to having UW master's degrees or who have gone from being incarcerated to having meaningful jobs in the community. We have students who are nurses, teachers, ministers, on their way to becoming social workers, lawyers, etc. And I think because both my parents made a journey out of poverty themselves through a school for the poor in Kentucky, I know that if you open the door for one person, it can change a whole family. The Odyssey Project encourages economically disadvantaged people to apply for its college-level two-semester, six-credit humanities course. The class is usually majority women, mostly women of color. In today's political climate, with a focus on sciences and being job-ready, do the humanities really help? Unless you know who you are and understand your history and understand your unique gifts, then you may not have the tolerance for taking math classes and other things along the journey. The humanities get at the core of who we are. Unless you tackle inner poverty, that sense that you're not worthy, you're not going to have the persistence you need to make it all the way to whatever career it is. The class studies a lot of the classics in literature. Can students really relate? Braxton says yes. I'll take, for instance, Plato's Allegory of the Cave. You can refer that to the fact that you've been in this cave all your life and you're trying to find your way out of the darkness, okay? And so now you're, you're seeing that, oh, wow, I can relate my current circumstance or something that I've been through in the past with my future in my current education and use that you know, as a tool to guide me and give me confidence. Meaningful stories cross race, class, and gender lines, says Auerbach. Ebenezer Scrooge in Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol becomes a modern-day landlord. We had one student set Macbeth in Chicago with gang 
um, you know, trying to shoot people down to get ahead. You can take these characters and these themes and easily make it your own. Our students right now in the current class come from Syria, Iraq, Trinidad, Colombia, Mexico, Gambia, Chicago, Louisiana, Madison. And it doesn't matter where you're from. If you read a compelling story like The Escape of Frederick Douglass from Slavery or Moving Poetry by Emily Dickinson, Walt Whitman, and Langston Hughes, you can find yourself in those words. Auerbach agrees that everyone may not need a college education, but she's working to make it a choice for all. College education is a broadening experience and that reading can promote empathy and awareness of a world outside one's own. And also on a very practical level, those with college degrees make more money. They have more opportunity. So why not give people a chance to have access? And then if they don't want to continue... That's their choice, but it shouldn't be a choice made on income. For those who don't go on to get a four-year college degree, Arbach says the program helps them become lifelong learners. For example, many of her students didn't know Madison has a free art museum. But Arbach feels students give as much as they get, and Braxton agrees. When we're in that classroom, we're learning from other cultures, we're learning different people's views, but then we're also learning the textbook requirements of that class. So I think we are getting enriched a lot more. It's not just a one-way street, because if our Odyssey students do make it to UW, as many of them do, or Edgewood, um, many are at Madison College, when they walk into those classrooms in psychology or criminal justice or social work, because they have those life experiences, they become teachers in the classroom as well as students, and they enrich the universities that they're at. You know, universities are too elitist. That is why I'm fighting like mad for this program to change the face of the University of Wisconsin and the face of universities around this country. Since most of the participants are women and many are single mothers, the project has always included free child care as part of its program. Now, Odyssey Junior will be offering enrichment experiences for the kids and grandkids of participants. Braxton says she's seen how the children emulate their moms, studying and doing homework together. As a multi-generational approach to ending poverty and improving college access, Odyssey Junior is the only program in Wisconsin to receive a $100,000 matching grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. But Trump is proposing to eliminate the NEH by next year, so our box deadline for meeting the challenge grant is this Friday, March 31st. The program has gotten a lot of community support, and she is currently just $10,000 away from the goal. If you'd like to find out more, check out their website, odyssey.wisc.edu. Braxton describes the crucial impact the Odyssey Project has had on her life. Coming from a background of abuse, the classroom has given me a, a voice, a voice where I'm able to tell my story and I'm able to educate others and also break the chains of the ghosts from the past. Shar Braxton is a 2006 alum and current staff of the Odyssey Project. Emily Arbach is the project director. For her turn, I'm Arlene Zaucha with production assistance from Carla Williams.
The longest-running study into the effects of oral contraception found that taking the pill protects women from endometrial, bowel, and ovarian cancer. The University of Aberdeen in Scotland began the study into the long-term effects of birth control in 1968. Researchers checked in with 46,000 women commissioned for the study over the course of 44 years. The study found that women who took oral contraceptive pills during their reproductive years were less likely to develop certain forms of cancer, and the protective benefits extended long after they stopped taking the pill. The University of Aberdeen recently published the findings of their study in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. The CEO of Thinks, an underwear company known for its commitment to feminist ideals, was recently accused of sexual harassment by one of her female employees. Other employees alleged that Thinks' workplace culture created an uncomfortable environment for women. Mickey Agarwal's unconventional management style included leading teleconference meetings while naked in bed and commenting on women's bodies by disparaging their weight and complimenting their breasts. Agarwal's behavior led to 10 of Think's 35 employees to leave the company since January of 2017. Several employees spoke with reporters at the website Racked and told them about the company's disconnect between its feminist ideals and workplace practices. Female employees were paid tens of thousands of dollars below market value for their work and were told they were ungrateful when they are asked for raises. Employees also alleged that the only two people who were granted raises were men. Chelsea LeBeau, the former head of public relations at Thinks, filed a complaint with the City of New York's Commission on Human Rights alleging that Agrawal sexually harassed her and other female employees. LeBeau said her former boss routinely asked women to expose their breasts, touched women's breasts in front of other employees, and expressed romantic interest in her employees. Thinks did not have a human resources department, so some employees felt they had no space to file harassment complaints. Agarwal stepped down as CEO before the complaint was made public. At the time, Agarwal said she will still represent the public face of the company, but would step away from her corporate management duties. The Taiwanese top court recently decided to hear a case that would establish same-sex marriage as constitutional. The case make... The case could make Taiwan the first Asian country to sanction same-sex marriages. It revolves around the question of whether the section of the Taiwanese Civil Code stating that marriage is between a man and a woman is constitutional. Taiwan is generally known as being fairly progressive with a prominent LGBTQ movement. However, the legislation of same-sex marriage is an issue that has led religious and conservative groups to raise their voice in opposition to same-sex marriage in recent months. As a result, Some lawmakers who were initially supportive of same-sex marriage are now less enthusiastic about passing the legislation to legalize it. Nevertheless, if the top court rules in favor of same-sex marriage, lawmakers will have no choice but to pass laws allowing it. Still, it is unclear how same-sex marriage will play out even if the Taiwan's top court determines that it's constitutional. The LGBTQ community wants to ensure that gay couples are given all the same rights as heterosexual couples. They do not want a separate law that only extends some of the rights heterosexual couples can receive. While the top court in Taiwan hears a case about same-sex marriage, other lower court rulings are also raising a a debate about LGBTQ rights. A recent court ruling ordered a gay woman who left her husband shortly after marrying him to pay him more than $16,000 U.S. dollars. The money is to compensate her husband for wedding fees and, quote, emotional pain, end quote, that he experienced. It is also meant to reimburse him for money paid to the bride's family as part of marital tradition. 
The woman had met the man on a blind date and was pressured to marry him by her family, who did not approve of her sexuality. She reportedly told her husband that she was gay on her wedding night and left him for her girlfriend a few days later. The woman has faced both support and criticism. Some believe that she should not have married the man so as not to draw him into her problems. Others have voiced the opinion that same-sex marriage needs to be legalized so people do not have to marry someone they don't want to be with. This support arose after it was revealed that the woman's family had known about her relationship with her girlfriend and pressured her to marry a man instead. Indigenous women in Australia continue to face multiple forms of discrimination. Here's Deanne Penn of UN Radio. Multiple forms of discrimination and exclusion are behind the alarmingly high prevalence of violence experienced by Indigenous women in Australia, according to a UN human rights expert. Dubravka Shimonovic said many of these women face sexism and racism, but they're also subjected to class-based discrimination due to their low socioeconomic status. The UN Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women, Its Causes and Consequences recently completed her first visit to Australia, where she also met with women with disabilities and women in prison. She spoke to Julia Dean about some of her preliminary findings. Ms. Shimonovic began by providing an assessment of the situation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, who she said are marginalized and not fully included in policies to eliminate violence against women and girls. They do not have facilities in terms of housing, in terms of employment, in terms of services needed for prevention of violence, even shelters only for a few days to escape from temporary violence, but then to go back. Usually men from such communities are often in a prison, even women are going to prison. So complete setting is different because they are facing multiple forms of discrimination. This intersecting between uh, race and gender is really key to address violence against women that is happening in such communities. And do you find that the Aboriginal communities themselves do have the solution? They do have a very important request that they should be fully included in all policies related to their situation, and this is not yet the case. And they do have requests for adequate financial resources for their socio-economic situation, for closing the gap with respect to their situation and for policies related to violence against women. So they are not receiving that. They do not have a possibility to fully influence those policies. So they should be really addressed by specific national action plan on violence against women and gender equality in order to give them such possibility to really fully participate uh, in all other global, let's say, federal policies related to this area. And did you visit with women who were concerned about violence against women with disabilities? They gave me the impression that they are not sufficiently included and they are not sufficiently covered by legal framework and policies. What about women and girls in prisons? This is the area that surprised me with respect to their let's say, very difficult situation in in this country. Uh, I was surprised that uh, women that are in pre-trial detention are in the same uh, correction facility with those that are sentenced, high security facility, and they are... What does that mean? There are many fences around. You must go through so many doors, and uh, sometimes they are even in uh, solitary cells, and uh, they are going through all these processes, even when they are entering such facility on uh, minor charges like non-paid fines or some mild things that should not be for incarceration. And also that minors could be in the same facility. It is something that was uh, not in line with international standards and uh, something that I uh, did not expect.
Soon, Italian women may be able to have paid menstrual leave for up to three days in a month. The Italian government is currently considering a bill that is designed to protect female workers who experience painful menstruation. But many worry that this bill might be just another excuse to discriminate women on the job market. Italy already has had experience with family-friendly labor laws that have backfired on women. Italian women are entitled to 80% of their salary for five months of maternity leave, but women struggle to find a job in the first place, and it is harder to retain their jobs after pregnancy. Italy's National Bureau of Statistics shows that almost one quarter of pregnant workers are fired, even though that is technically illegal. The menstrual leave bill presented by four female lawmakers in Italy is not the only attempt to help women with menstrual pain. Japan and South Korea already have similar laws on the books, but these lo- these laws are rarely used since it could be further used to penalize women in terms of salary and career advancement. Studies show debatable conclusions as well. Some say including menstrual cycles and labor issues increases female absenteeism, which contributes to the wage gap between men and women. Others say there's no evidence of female absenteeism. An average of 61 women are murdered by abusive partners in Spain each year, and now an organization in the country is providing 24-hour protection free of charge for women who are victims of abuse but have been left unprotected by the judicial system. Carolina, a former police bodyguard, is now using her ability to keep women safe from violent men. Formerly guarding public figures, she has now started a private association called ADEM to provide physical protection and emotional support for women living in terror of running into the abuser after they are released from custody, citing fear, citing fear that makes some women prisoners in their own home. Carolina is hoping to make her model of protection standard across the country and is continuing to train more female bodyguards to do the work. Her Turn News reporter Sam Burble was on the Capitol streets on the Day Without a Woman protest. It was here that she found rejuvenated hope in an odd place among teenagers. If you are like me, you are probably finding it hard to find the silver lining in the news these days. However, as activists, it is important for us to remember to take a moment and appreciate the good. During the Day Without a Woman protest earlier this month, I found hope in a number of young people that showed up to support women's rights. The following is excerpts from local high school students Lydia, Deja, and Angiana's speeches during that rally. I'm always hearing that teenagers don't know or care about politics and policies. We as students are trying to make our voices heard in the loudest ways we can. Living in Madison, I feel like we have many opportunities to speak out and make our voices heard. Although I am young, I will do everything I possibly can to make positive change. After the election, I could feel the impacts both personally and indirectly. Going to a public school opens my eyes to both diversity and opportunity. I feel like East has a lesson they could teach the world. We don't have clubs based on political beliefs and parties, but instead we have many identity clubs that work together. Instead of having a two-party system as the only way to get things done, we have many groups that all can work together to help each other in our school community. I've only been on this planet for 15 years, and I want in my lifetime to see us move far forwards with women's rights, not backwards. When I see my classmates here, I know that we are the future. I'm ready to fight not only for my rights, but for everyone's rights around me. Be ready, because we are the ones who are going to change the future.
Luciana. I'm a senior at La Follette High School. I am a student, I am a journalist, and I am an activist. And most importantly, I am a black woman. And I advocate for those who don't have a voice by speaking on issues that people bury into the ground, such as women's rights and Black Lives Matter. We're here to make people aware of the problems in our community and our nation. At rallies like this one, we are centered around the experiences of women, and it's important for us to remember the multitudes of experiences of these women. A white, middle-class, cisgender woman will not have the same experience as a low-income trans woman of color. We cannot fall into believing a single narrative of oppression. We must acknowledge that all experiences are just as important and just as valid as the other. This acknowledgement is of utmost importance in order to move forward as we unify the people. But look at us, we're all out here right now. So shout out to y'all. Despite the classes and work that we are missing, we are here because we know it is truly important. Standing up for the wonderful, powerful women in our community, our nation, and in our lives. All our diversity, we are here to fight for human rights, which is women's rights, that's black rights, that's every single person's rights, and to let the world know that we will not stand idly by while our rights are violated. We will fight back. Listen